It's a privilege to be with you today. Um, I remember praying for this church over a quarter century ago. That sounds so long. Uh, when uh, Paul and Fran Hahn were moving out here from Auburn, Alabama to be part of starting this new church. And so they're friends. And so we prayed and to actually come and be here and just to see what God has done and how he's continuing to bless and to flourish. It is a uh, it really is a privilege because I know many uh, people gave and sacrificed and, and worked and labored and prayed, and God is at work, and uh, that, that's very exciting. Um, I am uh, here with uh, two friends, uh, uh, Bruce Owen and Tim Sasser, who are down, down here in the front row. Tomorrow night, they are leading a seminar called The House in Order, and um, uh, they're with Missions of the World and doing that. And uh, I think it's something you can find very helpful, and the reason I say that is because I found it helpful. Uh, a few years ago, when my, my father died, uh, my mom uh, was beginning to have some dementia, and suddenly it was uh, my responsibility to begin help to oversee her finances, and uh, I, I needed help. And I, I didn't work for Missions of the World at this time. I was a pastor in Colorado, but I, I knew uh, Bruce, and he came and basically did the seminar in our kitchen and, um, and, and helped us to, to get my mom's financial house in order. And it, it, it just, what it did was... it. It enabled us to, to avoid a, what could have been a significant tax bill as we got things straight. It also, uh, we were able to structure it so my mother would have the income that she needed to live comfortably and to a son that is very important. And then so that she could also give generously. And so my mom had this privilege of giving to churches and ministries that she had, that had impacted her life for, for years that she loved. And it was such a joy for her uh, to know that she was able to do that. Well, we benefited so much there that later on I had them come out to our church in Colorado Springs. And my wife and I went through the seminar ourselves with many in our church. And uh, we got our house in order because as a pastor, and I know you've experienced this, I've been there when families have lost uh, family members and they're grieving. And yet the, the, the paper and everything's just not there. And now all of a sudden you've got grief combined with financial confusion. And we didn't want to do that to our children, frankly. And so... Uh, we went through it and found it helpful, as did many others. So um, if you can make it tomorrow night, that's great. If not, uh, they, they would still love to get your names and talk to you about how the, they could help you with that. So that's into that. I just want you to know about that. I think it's something you'll find beneficial. Well, as we look at Chronicles 29, here we have David as an old man. He is preparing to die. He had always wanted to build a temple for the Lord. And God said, that honor is not going to you. Your hands are full of blood. It's going to go to your son Solomon. So like a typical dad who wants to make sure his son can handle it, uh, he gets everything in order and he gives an extreme amount of finances. And then he also invites the leaders and they give in such abundance that the people are amazed. In fact, David looks at what he's given and goes, I can't believe we've done this. And so what, why, was the, why were they able to be so generous? And we see three reasons why. The first reason that David and the people are able to be so generous is he's able to give joyfully in response to God's grace. In response to God's grace. I mean, think about David. If there ever was a self-made man, it is David. David you know, grew up in a rural village of Bethlehem, if you can even call it a village. He was the eighth of seven sons the runt of the litter. He was, uh, he was considered insignificant. He was the lunch errand boy when we first meet him. And yet here he is at the end of his life. He is a, a rich, wealthy 
powerful king who's taken these 12 tribes that were a loose confederacy and joined them into this glorious nation. And so if anyone had a right to brag about accomplishments, it is David. And yet he doesn't brag. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. He looks at all that he has and all the wealth and he says, I didn't do this. Riches and honor and all the glory that I have ultimately comes from God. You notice how different that is from the way we oftentimes respond to success. Oftentimes, if we're, we're rich, we might say, well, look how, how savvy I am. Or if you succeed in academia, you'll say, well, look how smart I am. Or if you, uh, uh, you know, climb the corporate ladder, you might say, look how accomplished I am. Yet as much as we want to pride ourselves in our accomplishment, what David points out is that all of our success ultimately is attributed to God's grace. I mean, think about the difference between why some people are poor and some people are rich. We say, well, you work hard. And, and certainly that, that can be true. But for a person who grows up in poverty, extreme poverty in the United States, it is almost impossible for them to escape. In fact, if you do not live in extreme poverty now, then the odds are very, very, very high that you did not grow up in poverty. Uh, Michael Gerson and some others did some research on this, and they found five basic reasons why. People are trapped in poverty. Not going to go through all five. I just want to point out one. One is early childhood. For, for children who grow up in extreme poverty, they hear 30 million less words in the first four years of life than children who grow up in average to wealthy homes. 30 million less words. Do you know what that does to brain development? It's significant impact. So by the time they're four, they're already way behind before they even hit the school system. And not only that, but children who grow up in poverty hear 125,000 more discouraging words than encouraging words, while children who grow up in higher income homes hear 565,000 more words of encouragement than discouragement. And you don't have to be a child psychologist to realize this is going to have an extreme impact. And so even before they get to preschool, they're so far behind they can't catch up. Now, you might say, well, that's the parents' fault, that's the government's fault, that's the school system's fault, but you can't say it's the child's fault. They, they, are, they are behind, and it's not because of anything that they have done, which means, in the counter to that, then those of us who are ahead, it's not because of what we've done either. If you're currently not living in poverty, you probably didn't grow up in poverty, and you had absolutely nothing to do with that. Your parents were given to you by God. Your genes were given to you by God. Your, your uh, place of birth was determined by God. The educational job opportunities that happened to come your way were determined by God. Yes, you may be diligent, you may be hardworking, and that is significant. But ultimately, we must say along with David, both riches and honor come from you. Now, once we understand this, then we begin to take a different approach to the wealth and the money that God has given to us. Because then we begin to realize that our wealth and our possessions ultimately are an act of grace. Uh, if you believe that you earned it, you deserve it, then that's going to create sort of this entitlement mentality when it comes to money. This is my money. This is my wealth. I get to do with it what I want. But if your money and your wealth and your honor and your your, your the, the things that you have have been given to you by God, 
then that means they are a, a, a stewardship that's been given to you, which you are to steward and to use for his glory. Uh, you know, on one hand, if you believe that it's all based on your works, that's going to promote arrogance. But if you believe it's based on God's grace, then it's going to breed ge- generosity. And that's why, as Christians, we're the most generous people on earth. In fact, by the way, a number of studies have shown this, that uh, in America, the most... Ge- by, Americans are the most generous nation on the earth, and among Americans, evangelical Christians tend to be the most generous. Uh, and I, I believe this all ties back to grace. The very gospel that we've been affirming this morning throughout the liturgy affirms and reminds us that our salvation is not something we have earned or deserved. You began this service this morning by confessing you deserve nothing. And so we we begin by this whole idea that the reason we have anything with God at all, the love of the Father, is through God's grace. And the the Greek word for grace is the word charis, which is where we get the word charity. We all came here this morning celebrating that we are charity recipients. We live on charity. We're dependent on charity. It's all by grace. In 2014, the Pew Research Center conducted a, a survey of Americans asking them about what they believe about heaven and hell. Most Americans believe in heaven and in hell. In fact, most Americans would say this, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. And by the way, most would say they're going to heaven, which means most people think I'm pretty good, at least compared to you. Uh, And so, uh, you know, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. And so it is, uh, we see it's not gospel, that's karma, right? You get what you deserve. If you're good, you deserve to go to heaven. And so you have this idea that, that I have God's love or, or I'm getting to heaven because I've earned it uh, through my works. But the gospel undercuts this works-based meritocracy. The gospel is not that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. The gospel is that good people, through their union with Christ, uh, excuse me, bad people, through their union with Christ, go to heaven, and a good person went to hell. We go to heaven because Christ went to hell and suffered the hell on the cross. As as ultimately, we see that the wages of sin is death. What we have earned is God's judgment. And so the gospel strips us of our pride. It strips us of any sort of works mentality. And at the same time, while it crushes our pride, it elevates our joy because in Christ we don't get what our sins deserve. For the wages of sin is death. That's not the whole verse, is it? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so when we begin to understand that that we deserve judgment, but we receive grace merely because of God's charity, that we've been united to Christ. Here's the beautiful thing. When you became a Christian, you at that point were united to Christ so that Everything that is his is yours. Your life is hidden in Christ, which means when Jesus died on the cross, you died with him. You, you have died to sin. When Jesus rose again from the dead, you, you rose with him, Paul says. And there's a sense then because we're united to Christ, our sin became his and his righteousness became ours. And it's all based on God's grace and God's charity. And when we realize this, that we have an inheritance in Christ, that is, that is glorious, that will never perish, spoil, or fade, that we received for no other reason than God's grace towards us, then we begin to see 
all that we have is by grace, is by charity. And it changes our view of our, of our wealth. Suddenly we see, I don't deserve this. I've been blessed by God with this. And workspace religion, see, reads stinginess. Grace reads generosity. And one of the ways we begin to understand, if, know if we understand grace, is if it results in a generous heart. Does it result in a heart that says, I've been given it all by God. Grace breeds generosity. Well, not only does grace breed generosity, second reason David is joyful in his giving is his commitment to God's mission. Look at verse 16. It says, O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand, and all of it is of your own. So David is collecting money to build the temple. Now, up to this time, God was worshipped in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was just like a big tent. It was a temporary structure. And now they're building a temple for the Lord where Israel could worship. And, and not only Israel, the temple was also to be a light to the nations. You remember when they built the temple, the outer court of the temple was called the court of Gentiles. And so what was supposed to happen here is that Israel, as they lived in covenant faithfulness to God, was to be blessed by God, and the nations would be drawn to the temple to worship the Lord. And so what David is doing is he's he's giving so that God can receive the glory that is due his name so that Israel can worship and the nations can come and worship. Now, here's the amazing thing. David would never see the temple. David and the men and most of the people who are giving to this would never see it. He'd be dead and long gone. He's giving for something that will never benefit him. And, 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 and so why would he do that? The reason David would do this is because David is not passionate for his glory. He's passionate for God's glory. David desires to see God receive the glory that is due his name. And we do the same thing with our generosity. As God's people, we give generously, and we are building a temple. Not a temple made with hands, not a temple of stone, but a temple that is built, as Paul says, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. A temple whose cornerstone is Christ himself. It is a temple that is comprised of all those who trust in Jesus from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It's a temple full of people whom you have never met that are gathering together, being built into this household of the Lord. And by investing in this temple, we are investing in something that will last. Notice, did you notice throughout this, uh, this psalm, David talks about how your life is temporary. By the way, that was a theme of the liturgy. If you go back and look at those first couple of hymns, they can be a bit depressing. They talk about you're going to die. You're going to die. You're not going to last forever. But the temple of the Lord will. The temple that David was building would end up be called Solomon's temple would last 300 years. The temple that we are building through our generosity is going to last forever. At the end of the book of Revelation, it descends to earth and is here forever. We're part of something eternal, part of something that will last. By your acts of generosity, you're sharing in the work that God is doing. In 2020, when the COVID lockdowns hit, it was hard for everybody. But in certain parts of the world, it was life-threatening. Shut down the economy, poor people were starving, And so at Mission to the World, we had something called a compassion fund that people were giving very generously to. 
And this money was distributed to places of need around the world. Well, one of those was in South Asia, uh, in an undisclosed country, a closed country, uh, a place where Christians face heavy persecution. And a pastor there in South Asia took these compassion funds uh, that he received and was able to, uh, uh, to buy for 561 families a month's supply of rice, lentils, salt, and basic food. 561 families got, got enough food to eat for, for, the, for the month. Many of these families were Hindus and Muslims. Uh, who were, and these Hindus and Muslims were struggling to find enough food. By September of 2020, 143 people had come to faith in Christ through this compassion offering. They, they had seen the love of Christ. They, they'd heard the gospel message, but they saw it being demonstrated through the generosity of God's people. And they said, this is true. Now, when I first heard this, I, I emailed the man who wrote the, the story about this. And I said, this sounds too good. Did this really happen? And he said, no, actually, it gets better. In fact, the rest of the article he wrote said this. He said that since that time, this past October, the church, those two churches that were started then have continued to grow. They held a seminar. Uh, ten non-Christians came to that. Ten people of Muslim background. Four Muslims were converted and have now been baptized and are part of the church. Not only that, you're thinking, well, these people are coming just because they want food. They're trying to make their lives better. Becoming a Christian in this community did not make their life better. They're being persecuted for their faith. They're being ostracized by their community. In the not-too-distant fast, the, the Presbyterian churches there were burned down. People have been murdered for their faith. But because they saw the generosity of God's people, they said, this must be real. They embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, when you give, and you give to God's kingdom work, you're building the temple of God around the world. It may not benefit you. In fact, it probably won't. But it, but it causes God's glory and fame to spread throughout the world so that many, many people will come and worship him. And as God's people, we rejoice in that. So we give generously in response to God's grace. We give generously to join in God's mission. But ultimately, we give generously as an act of faith. It takes faith to give. If we're going to give generously and sacrificially, it takes faith to give. In verse 14, David is marveling at all that they've given. And he says, how... Have I and our people been able to give such ridiculous amounts of money for the construction of the temple? And, and, and ultimately, his answer is, it's because God is the one who provides. Now, what he's saying then is that, that God is our covenant God, our faithful God. He's the one who cares for his people and provides for his people. And if we believe that God is the one who's caring for us, that God is the one who gives us our security, that God is the one who's going to provide for us, then that allows us to hold things loosely and give things generously. We're not depending on our wealth to care for us. We're depending on God to care for us. That's why in Colossians chapter 3, the apostle Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness, he says, is idolatry. Now, when he says covetousness is idolatry, he doesn't mean that you actually get out your bank account app on your phone and look at it and bow down and pray to it. But he does mean this. He does mean you're worshiping it. What does it mean to worship? What does it mean to have a false God? A God is what you're trusting in to provide you with your security and your happiness. 
And what Paul is saying, and he's really repeating what Jesus said. Jesus said, you can't worship both God and money. You're going to serve one or the other. He says, you're going to trust in one or the other for your security and your happiness. You're going to trust in one or the other. Which is it going to be? And money is a very tempting idol. And here's why. It works. It works. You know? Yeah, you need security. You know, you know, anybody want to retire someday? Money's going to help. Comes in real handy. Uh, you need a car. Money can do that. Need a new house. Money can do that. We'd like to have nice clothes. Money can do that. See, money seems like it's a great God. It can give you security and it can provide you with the things that you want. But let's be a little, have a little Wizard of Oz moment, pull back the curtain and look at money a little bit more carefully. Money says, if you serve me, I'll give you the security and the happiness that you want. But the problem is, with money, is it's never secure. You know, I, I think, and I think this often, I think if I had enough money, I wouldn't worry. How much money do you think it would take for me not to worry? More than I have. And studies show for just about every American that is always true, no matter how much you have. Now, let's say you have a ridiculous amount. So now you have a lot of money, so you're free of worry, right? Not at all. Ecclesiastes says that the poor man sleeps at night where the rich man can't go to sleep at night. You know why? The poor man goes to sleep because I've got nothing to lose. The rich man has a lot to lose. Have you been following the stock market? And some of you have been following and go, oh, man, last week was terrible. What do you think is going to happen if, if Ukraine goes to war, then Russia times, times up with China and they lock out our economy? Do you know how many things can go wrong this year with your money? You know, so, so now you're worried about your money. You're looking to money to save you, but now you're trying to figure out how to save it. Now, here's a tip. If your God needs to be, if you need to be your God's savior, you've got the wrong God. And if you're going to have to be your God's savior, so... We're worshiping the wrong thing, and, and money can't save us. And so what happens is with giving, here's where giving is an act of faith. You have a choice. I'm going to trust my money, or I'm going to trust God. And so now I've got to put my money where my faith is, ultimately. And I'm going to say, I'm going to take my money, and I'm going to give it, which means I don't have it anymore. It's no longer able to provide me with the security and the things that I want. And I'm going to give it generously. And we're saying, Lord, I'm going to have to trust you to care for me. Um, my father was very proud that I was a pastor. And uh, he was one of my biggest supporters. But it did not start that way. Uh, my father was a Christian, loved the Lord. Uh, but he grew up very poor in, in rural Alabama, working in the cotton mills. And he remembers what it was like to be poor. And so when I first talked about being a pastor... My dad's first words were, don't do it, you won't make any money, and you won't be happy. And I thought, who needs money? I've got Jesus. Fast forward 10 years later. I've got, uh, I'm married, have young children, I'm a church planter. Our church has no money, like literally no money. We've got no money, and everything breaks all at the same time, like everything and I am so stressed out, and um, I'm in a meeting in Jacksonville, Florida, and I'm going home to Orlando. I'm in the car by myself, and, and I, I'm just praying, and I pray out loud, and then I pray out louder and louder, and I get to the point, I'm not kidding, I, I'm yelling at God because I'm going, Lord, 
I've been giving generously all these years. I've done what you said. I'm serving you, and you're not coming through. I don't have what I need. And I said, I yelled. I said, and dad was right. Dad was right. I don't have any money, and I'm not happy. And I was angry at God because he wasn't coming through. Well, I'm here. What does that tell you? God came through. He delivered time after time after time. Fast forward another couple decades. Uh, It is 2013. Uh, We are in New York City. My daughter is uh, graduating from college, and um, our whole family's in New York City. Now, this, my wife and I look at each other, and we're in total amazement. How in the world were we ever able to take our whole family to New York City? I mean, this is not something, uh, you know, we could afford. And, and someone had given us a place to stay, and, and different things had happened. And, but we're just, we're just amazed at, at God's provision. Our daughter's graduated from college. There's no debt. And, and thinking about this. So Trish and I look at each other, and we have three daughters, and... Um, we look at each other and we're just amazed. And, and, and she says to them, to the girls, she goes, do you know how amazing this is? You don't, you don't understand how amazing this is. And she says, Mark, you've got to tell them about our giving. Now, we talk to our girls about money, talk about being frugal, getting, staying out of debt, you know, saving, and all these different things. And they knew that we gave, uh, you know, but we never really told them what we gave. We didn't tell them what it meant for us to give, that, that giving required sacrifice. And so... We just never talked about it with anyone. And so we told them. Um, we told them that we'd always given faithfully, even when money was tight, that, that we were going to, you know, tie the minimum at least. You know, we were going to always give. We were going to give faithfully, even when it felt like we could not afford to do so. And, uh, and now I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher. I'm not into the health and wealth thing. You hear the guys on TV, if you, if you give, God's going to give you back tenfold, hundredfold. You know, here's what happens. If you give 10% of your money away, you're going to live off 10% less. That's what's going to happen. You give away 20% of your money, you're going to live off 20% less. That's how it works. So I'm not a prosperity gospel. I believe God calls us to sacrifice. At the same time, I do believe the Bible, and I do believe the promises of God. And among those promises of God, that God promises to bless when his people are faithful. And in Proverbs 3, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. There are other verses in the Bible, Malachi, Haggai, where, where God says, He withholds his blessing from his people because they are not generous. There are other verses in the Bible that talks about how God pours out his blessing in response to generosity. Again, not a health and wealth preacher. Not saying this is an investment plan at all. However, however, when we step out in faith and trust God, we will find that God is faithful in caring for his people. And those who give generously know that. When we step out in faith and we live off less and, and, and choose to, 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 to risk that and say, I'm not going to trust in the things money can buy for my happiness. I'm going to trust in the Lord our God. When we, we step out in faith and do that, God is a faithful God. God has a habit of providing for his people. So in response to God's grace in your life and a commitment to God's mission, I challenge you to take a step of faith and live generously. Rejoice in God's grace. Everything you have came from him. 
And because of that, you want to see his fame spread throughout the world. And so we give towards that. But ultimately, it comes down to this. Will you trust God enough to live a generous life? Do you believe he keeps his promises? Christians, let's do something radical. Let's live as if the Bible is true. And when we do that, not only will we see God faithful, but the world will be blessed as well. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a faithful God who keeps your promises to your people. And so, Lord, we pray, give us the faith to live generously. Help us to see that we're not giving so that we can earn your favor. Help us instead to give in response to the grace that you've already given to us. Lord, we know you will not love us any more or any less. And yet at the same time, oh Lord, we know that if we believe you, if we really trust you, we can give generously. So Lord, thank you for all that you've given to us. And now, Lord, may we worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.